So John 1 verses 19 to 34, this is God's word. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. This is God's word. Remember that John's gospel is all about bearing witness to Jesus as the Christ. The point of the gospel is that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you would believe in him and by believing you would have life in his name. And John's gospel is very different to the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, um, who take a more historical, um, not that John's isn't historical, but a more chronological look through all of the events, whereas John is taking things um, that indeed happen. It's not as if it's uh, symbolic to the detriment of histor historicism, historical, but um, he's doing it in a way that is very clearly showing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the worst possible thing in our entertainment-driven, media-saturated culture where we become numb to the awe that we should have, to the majesty of Christ, the worst possible thing is that we somehow are not moved with affections and moved in a wonderful way when we see all of the evidence that John is giving of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the Saviour of the world, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We should be praying as we go through this, that as we get all of these glimpses of Jesus as the Christ, that our hearts would well up, uh, that we would be moved with affections rather than simply needing a four steps to um, live in the workplace in light of Jesus, that we would just see how wonderful it is to know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, our Saviour. In Him we have life and life abundantly. So on this theme of John 
giving the evidence of Jesus as the Christ. The first 18 verses are really John establishing the theological evidence of Jesus as the Christ, that he is the word who in the beginning was with God and who is God. And then that word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And John is giving the theological evidence of Jesus as the Christ, of his self-existence, of his eternality, and of the fact that he has come to enter into the flesh. And now from verse 19, John is continuing this evidence for Jesus as the Christ, but it's more based on now the historical narrative, figures like John the Baptist, and then looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's still continuing his evidence showing that Jesus is the Christ, but we're looking at it from a historical lens. And this starts with John the Baptist. And there is clearly a high level of significance to John the Baptist. I don't know if you thought of this as we were working our way through the first 18 verses, how John the Gospel writer kind of inserts John the Baptist at points and then takes him back out and goes back to Jesus and then brings him back in. For example, John the Gospel writer starts talking about the Word who was in the beginning and who is God, who was with God and who is God, and light was coming into the world. And then in verses 6 to 8, he starts talking about this man who was sent by God, whose name was John. And then just a few verses later, he starts kind of removing John the Baptist from the picture, saying, oh, but he was not the light. He just came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone. And then he focuses in on Jesus again. And then in verse 15, after he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he then inserts John the Baptist again and say, oh, by the way, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And then he goes back to Jesus for from his fullness. And he's sort of like inserting John the Baptist and then taking him out again, clearly trying to draw our attention to something, trying to draw our attention to the significance of John the Baptist. And the main significance of John the Baptist is that he is, of course, the final messenger, the final prophet, the final mouthpiece of God before the moment in history where God himself enters in. From a long line of the prophets, from Moses to Isaiah to Malachi, over a thousand years, everyone in between, they were all in some way testifying that the Messiah was going to come, that God was going to intervene in human history himself and come in. And John the Baptist becomes the last prophet to come right before the promised Messiah. And passages talk about this. We'll look at one in Isaiah today, but one, uh, another one is Malachi chapter three, where in Malachi chapter three, God says, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And we know that the messenger there is referring to John the Baptist. Jesus himself says that in Matthew 11, where he says, this is um, who God or the prophet Malachi was referring to when he said that, John the Baptist. So Malachi chapter three, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there's this messenger figure that's gonna come and he's gonna prepare the way God is saying before me and immediately preceding that we get that because he says suddenly and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Remember that Malachi is likely the last or one of the last prophetic books. That's why it comes last in our Bibles, uh, because it's chronologically the last prophetic book. This is the last prophetic word before about 400 years of silence before Jesus comes. Of course, there were things happening in Jewish history, the Maccabean period, but really this is the last official prophetic voice, the word of God for 400 years, 400 years of silence. So you can imagine the Jewish people hanging on to these words from the prophet Malachi. It comes right at the end of the book. God said that he would send his messenger and he's going to prepare the way. And when he prepares the way, God himself is going to come. He's going to come suddenly to his temple. That this was the hopes of the people, that the messenger would come. And this is John the Baptist. So you can imagine every other prophetic voice, prophetic in quotations as the, you know, every other revolutionary in person like Judas Maccabeus who was trying to free the people. They were wondering, is he the Christ? Or maybe he's this messenger and waiting for this final person to come. This is John the Baptist. He is the last evangelist to proclaim the Lord's coming who immediately precedes the ushering in of this new age. He ushers in this messianic age that was promised long before so he is a very significant person. I think it's helpful for us to just like get outside of our 21st century head for a moment. Just think from a first century perspective with all of your ancestors talking about this coming Messiah and knowing that there's going to be a messenger who is going to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And then all of our hopes would finally be realized. All of the hopes of the Jewish people and indeed the world rest upon God's promise that he will send his Messiah. And they know that this messenger must precede the Messiah. So John, the gospel writer, is clearly bringing John the Baptist in to kind of draw our attention to the fact that he's a very significant man. He's the last prophet, the last evangelist to proclaim the coming Messiah. And after him, there's a new age. There's a new age dawning, the messianic age where the Messiah actually comes and walks upon the earth. So he is the foretold messenger who's preparing the way for the promised one who was foreordained in eternity past to enter into his creation and bring about the new creation in him. John the Baptist is a very significant person in, times, in, in terms of the time and message that he is entrusted with. Now, with that background, let's look at the passage Starting from verse 19, the story begins with these priests and Levites sent to John the Baptist. Clearly, John the Baptist is very significant at this point. We know from the other Gospels that people from all of Jerusalem and Judea are coming to him to be baptized. So he is very popular. He's very popular among the people. Naturally, uh, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, uh, some of the Pharisees there, the religious leaders are wanting to know who is this guy? Who is this dude? He's clearly popular. He's baptizing a whole bunch of people. So they come and we read here that they say, who are you? And John confesses. He doesn't deny, but he confesses, I am not the Christ. 
And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? No, you can kind of see like a frustration with John. He starts off by saying, I am not the Christ. Then it's just, I am not. And then finally just, no, no, I'm not. I'm not any of these people. Now, it's interesting because we know that there is this idea of John the Baptist coming in the spirit of Elijah and even that account in, uh, that Jesus talks about John the Baptist in Matthew 11. He actually says, if you, know, if you will receive it, he is the Elijah to come. So there's clearly a significance, significance to that. But John the Baptist is very clearly saying, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. He has a a, um, decreasing personality in the sense, you remember in John chapter 3, he says, Christ must increase, I must decrease. So John the Baptist seems to have this humility about him where he's constantly trying to remove himself and just point to the coming Messiah. So that seems to be what is happening here. And finally, they just say in verse 22, well, who are you? We need to give an answer, so tell us who you are. And in verse 23, he says... I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now that comes from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. So let's look at Isaiah 40 for a moment just to see the context of this. In Isaiah 40, this is coming off the back of a word of judgment in Isaiah 39, where we read of uh, the account of Hezekiah, the king who allows all of the uh, foreign kings and um, authorities to come in and actually see the palace. And Isaiah ends up, uh, well, God through Isaiah rebukes him and says, you shouldn't have done that. You're a, a fool. And it's a word of judgment. And it's a foreshadowing of the Babylonian exile. We know that because uh, Isaiah says to him that your sons will become eunuchs in the palace of Babylon. They're going to be taken away. So your sons, the the most uh, prized people, the sons of the king, even they are going to be cast out and become eunuchs in the palace of Babylon. They're going to serve a foreign people. So it's a word of judgment. And on the back of this judgment, We then have Isaiah saying in chapter 40, verses 1 to 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So just get this picture. After they receive a word of judgment, on the back end of judgment, as so often happens, through the book of Isaiah. On the back of judgment, there is always this hope that's coming just around the corner. And the hope that we see is comfort, comfort. Tell my people that her warfare, that is her hard service, is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. The idea is that the uh, punishment is satisfied. The holy God's punishment is satisfied. Her iniquity is pardoned. Her sins are wiped over. And it's in this context that we then have the phrase that John mentions in verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So this is coming off the back of the comfort toward God's people. And then you have this voice speaking the words of comfort. And the voice is saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The picture is of this barren land. 
this wasteland, which is possibly symbolic of what Israel had become, a barren people. They were about to be exiled, a wasteland. And in God's mercy, a pathway is being built where God himself will enter in and will bring about this comfort. And then look at verses four to five. This is still part of the, John the Baptist only mentions the first part of the voice, but really it's connected to verses four and five. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and uneven ground shall become level and the rough places are plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I love just seeing how connected the Bible is. Think of the themes we went over in verses 14 to 18 of the word becoming flesh and that showing that God's desire was to dwell amongst us so that we would behold his glory, which we see in Jesus. That's the purpose, that God desires to dwell amongst us. Why? So that we would see his glory. That's what we were made for, to worship him, to praise him and to honor him, so that we would see his glory and we see the glory, behold the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And this was what was saying, this is what was said in Isaiah 40. Make straight the way of the Lord, prepare the way. Valleys are going to be lifted up, mountains made low, uneven ground should become level. As in saying there's nothing that's going to obstruct this highway. There's nothing that's going to get in the way. There's a highway coming. And what's the end result? Once God comes down the highway, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's our hope. That's the purpose. And that's why John, the gospel writer, is referring to that in the beginning of his gospel. And this is what John the Baptist sees his ministry as preparing the way for the coming Messiah to come and everyone to behold his glory. The path that is being prepared is one which allows all flesh to gaze upon the glory of the Lord, to behold the light of the world who has come in and to just be captivated by his radiance. And so this is what John the Baptist is crying out. He's saying, I am that guy. I'm the one. I'm the voice who was foreordained to proclaim that a highway is coming. There is a path coming. Prepare the way. He's saying, basically, look, everyone, God is coming. God is here. And we are to behold his glory. His ministry is one of preparation. He is here to prepare the way and he is here to prepare the people for the coming Messiah. So John is saying to the Jews of his day, this is the moment you have all been waiting for. This is the moment where the coming Messiah enters, where the promised Savior comes to his own people, the chosen servant, the revelation of Yahweh. He is coming and John is saying, you better be ready. You better be ready for this coming Messiah. Because as John the Gospel writer says in chapter 3, the judgment will be that the light has come into the world, but the people love darkness more than the light because their deeds were evil. And this is the judgment that the light has entered in and you better turn to the light or else it will be condemnation upon you. It will demonstrate that you are living in such darkness that you will remain there.
So this is who John the Baptist is. He is the last man appointed by God to bear witness to the coming Messiah. And after the priests and Levites hear this bombshell, you can imagine their reaction to hearing that. They ask, why are you baptizing then? They still seem to be quite confused. Now, the question isn't about baptism itself, but rather why John has the authority to baptize. We know that there were different types of baptism going on. There was always purification of the priests. So there, was, there were forms of baptism. But the point here is rather why does this John the Baptist, who denies that he's the Christ and who denies that he's Elijah and who denies that he's the prophet, likely referring to uh, Deuteronomy 18, where God said, I will raise up for you another prophet like Moses. And John the Baptist is saying, that's not me. And they're saying, well, why are you baptizing then? The issue is clearly with the authority of John's baptism, because you can see that in his response. He doesn't go on to explain the ins and outs of his baptism, how he was doing it. Though we know, as particularly as Credo Baptist, he was dunking people, dunking uh, people under the water. Sets so a bit of a theme that we'll get to in chapter 3. But he doesn't actually go into the ins and outs of his baptism. But instead, he actually points them to the true authority. So he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And I am not even worthy to untie his sandal. This is like John saying, you're questioning my authority to baptize. But in your midst, he's here now, is the one who my whole baptism points to, the one who has all authority, in heaven and earth, he is in your midst, and I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. It's kind of like this underlying uh, irony in him saying, quit worrying about my baptism, because my baptism is pointing to the Messiah. It's preparing you for the Messiah, and he's in your midst now. He's here, and you better be ready for him. My baptism can just decrease and fade away as he increases, as he ushers in this new age. This, the, the point is looking at the authority of the one who John's baptism points to. And it's a remarkable picture of the humility of John and of the immeasurable worth of Christ in this small little passage here. Look at it. Jesus himself refers to John the Baptist as the greatest among men. He says, among all of those born of woman, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. He is the best man. He's the greatest. And then we have John the Baptist, who it seems fair to say, he's clearly the man. He's, he's the best man. And he says, I'm not even worthy to do the task of a common slave. There's a slave's job to untie the sandals, to wash the feet. And it's not a job that you want to do. John is saying, I, I would love to untie his sandals. What an honor. I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. So the picture we have so far is John the Baptist responding to them, denying that he is anyone of the significance of the Messiah. He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not uh, the prophet. He is merely pointing to the Messiah. He's pointing to him. We have this picture of John upholding Christ as utterly worthy and immeasurable worth. And we know that 
this moment in history is about to usher in the initial fulfillment of God's promise to visit his people, to, in, to intervene on behalf of his people, to atone for their iniquity, to behold his glory, to redeem his people. And now to add another layer of clarity onto what the Messiah is coming to do. In verse 29, we see John the Baptist's interaction with Jesus himself as he sees uh, him and he gives this excited proclamation. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I think there's a few layers to this. Number one, it would be hard to miss the background of the Passover lamb that the Jewish people had, se- uh, had celebrated most years. Indeed, they were meant to celebrate the Passover every year. And there would be this picture of a blameless year old lamb without blemish who had to be slaughtered and the blood was, uh, would cover them. And it was a, re- reminding them of the Exodus where the blood of the lamb would be put over the doorposts and the destroyer would then pass over the people as they were freed to remind them that the sh- without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no atonement. So the blood must be shed in order to spare you from the wrath of God. And they have this history. And here John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, he's here, the, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. The lamb of God is here. And he takes away the sin of the world. He increases the scope to not just Israel, but indeed the world. It's reminiscent of the the passage that John the Baptist clearly would have been familiar with back in Isaiah 40, where he says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The verse immediately before that says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her, her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. Her sin, her transgression is finished. It's atoned for. How would it be atoned for? By the Passover lamb, by the coming Messiah, here to wipe away the sins of the people, the only one who could satisfy the righteous justice of a holy God. That's the idea here. So the Passover lamb, is fulfilled in Jesus who comes and he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 30, John the Baptist immediately says, This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He's saying the Lamb, the Lamb of God is actually the preeminent word who has become flesh. That's the idea of Though he comes after me, he's actually before me. It's about significance. It's about position, preeminence, saying he is first to no one else. He is preeminent. So the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's actually the one who was way before me. He was in the beginning with God and he is God. It's possibly why if we just go back to verse 15, remember how John Uh, The gospel writer inserts verse 15 in a bit of an odd place. Uh, He's talking about the word becomes flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then you have in parentheses, John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me saying 
He's the Word who was in the beginning. He was before me. He was first. It's saying He is significant in an immeasurable way above everyone else. He is preeminent. There is no one before Him in terms of His worth. There is no one before Him in terms of His ability to atone for sin. There is no one before Him. He is God's final and only answer to humanity's problem, which is sin. The Lamb of God is the preeminent word who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 31, John the Baptist continues testifying to Christ. He says, I myself didn't know him. So he admits initially that he didn't know him. Now, this could mean a few things. Maybe firstly, it could mean that he actually didn't know Uh, Jesus, though we know that he was his cousin, likely, but we know that John the Baptist was a bit of a nomad. He lived in the desert. Uh, Maybe he didn't know him. Maybe uh, that is the case, and that actually gives more credibility to John the Baptist's witness, to actually, so that there was no collusion or anything like that. Or it could be that John the Baptist is saying, I didn't know him as the Son of God. I didn't know him as Messiah. And we, we know that because in the other Gospels, John the Baptist, even while he's already met Jesus, he's sending messengers to Jesus saying, hey, are you the one we've been looking for? Are you the one? So it could be that, which makes sense because then we have that proclamation, verse 34, but I have now seen him and I bear witness that this is the Son of God. Maybe at the beginning, he wasn't sure of that. Either way, in either of these scenarios, The point is that John the Baptist simply knew that he had been appointed to do a task, to have a ministry of preparation, to prepare people for the coming Messiah. And his point is so that he would be revealed to Israel who had been longing for their Savior. That's his point. It doesn't matter whether he knew him or not. His point is to baptize, to prepare the people's hearts for this moment in history where God's Uh, people would have God himself coming to visit them so that Christ would be revealed to Israel, the Passover lamb, the one they've been longing for. And John testifies that this one is Israel's promised Messiah because he says in verse 32, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Now, this is reminiscent of Isaiah 42 in The Chosen Servant where in Isaiah 42, we read of God speaking of this promised Messiah. And he says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This would have been a very prominent passage for the people, this chosen servant who was going to come, the one in whom Yahweh's own soul delights in. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, we know that God uses that term for Israel themselves as his chosen servant. But we know that they failed. They needed a Messiah to be the chosen servant. Remember the audible words heard at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son, In with him I am well pleased. Same idea as Isaiah 42. I have put, uh, he is the chose, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. And then at the baptism, the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, 
we hear the audible words of God saying, this is my son in whom my soul delights. And then John the Baptist here, back to our passage, says, this has to be the chosen servant because the spirit remained upon him. He says, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. It didn't just go away. It remained on him. He is appointed as the chosen servant in whom God's spirit is upon. He's upon him. It rem- uh, remains on him. This is the chosen servant of Israel who's coming to bring justice and he is going to baptize with the baptism we have all longed for he is going to baptize with the holy spirit the spirit was the mark of the new age keep this in mind as as one of the dominant themes through john this ushering in of the new age this messianic age the age of the new creation keep this in your minds as you're reading John because it's a dominant theme we know that the spirit is the mark of uh, the new age of restoration it was promised to Israel Isaiah 44 3 God says for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants it's this mark of renewal just as water on a dry ground. God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon your offspring. Or we think of the famous passage in Joel 2, which Peter quotes as Pentecost saying, this is where it began, where Joel 2, God said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And Peter very clearly says, this is what's been inaugurated at Pentecost. Look at it. The Holy Spirit is falling upon people. This was the mark of restoration, a new age. The age of the Spirit whom Jesus brings. And as he ascends, he sends the Spirit to dwell with his people, to empower them for the ongoing work in Christ's name. So God's Spirit wouldn't simply be poured out on a particular prophet or particular people, but actually upon all kinds of people. And it would inaugurate the time when God's people would have his Spirit dwelling within them causing them to walk in his statutes and obey his laws, just as God spoke through Ezekiel. The the prophetic word through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, where he would sprinkle clean water on people so that they would be clean and he would give them a new heart and a new spirit within them. And the, the baptism of Jesus, that is where he baptizes in the Holy Spirit, that acts as the initial fulfillment the initial fulfillment of the promise cleansing and renewing work where God's spirit would dwell within his people. So it seems strange saying it to a group of people who are probably quite like-minded, but of course the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not some weird second blessing. It's, it's, It's the baptism that comes when we are all, when all believers confess Christ, where they are born again and they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. So John is saying, this is the baptism we all require. This is the dawning of a new age. This is the mark of restoration. It's the mark of the new creation. John, the gospel writer, has already labored this by very clearly in the beginning of his gospel, giving allusions back to Genesis 1 so that when he begins his gospel, it's like mirroring the creation account to show there's a new creation happening. So just as in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we have in the beginning was the word and all things were created through him. 
It's this new creation. And to, to just show this even more, this is, um, I will go here because I think it's, it's interesting. It's one of those little interesting tidbits that you think, should I say this? Um, but I do think it's helpful. John, the gospel writer, in, in chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, he is very, very particular with using the phrase the next day. This is the only place this happens where he has repetitions of the next day. So we read all from verse 19. This is the historical account. And then you have verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. Then verse 35. The next day. Again, John was standing. Then verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And then at the start of chapter two on the third day day. Now, if you read through the Gospel of John, he doesn't use that anywhere else. In fact, you can clearly see by the time he get by the time we get after the events at the wedding with Jesus turning the water into wine, he just starts saying, he starts speaking in generalities. Like he says from verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. It's literally just not many days. So he's not concerned with, with specific days anymore. He just says, they just went there for a little bit. And then you don't need to know the days anymore. But here, he is very specific with saying the next day. And if you add these up, we have a week. We have a week here. And the week culminates with the wedding where Jesus turns water into wine, which is the mark of the new age, the new creation. Something new is happening. So John, the gospel writer, is very clearly here showing something new. This is the new creation. Everything is pointing to the mark of the new creation. And the Messiah is the one who brings that about. So this is what John is testifying to, that the chosen servant who was promised long ago, the one who reveals the glory of God, the one who has immeasurable worth, the one who takes away the sin of the world, he's here. He is here and he comes to baptize his followers in the Holy Spirit, which is to say he is the one who's bringing about the new creation where you have the spirit dwelling within you, empowering you to live in a way that is obedient to the Lord, to fulfill uh, the ongoing work of Christ, his earthly ministry. He initiates what the church would then continue walking in his ways, bearing witness to him as the Christ and verse 34 of this section here, John finishes by testifying, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. That's what the Gospel of John is all about. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the promised Messiah. He is the final word and revelation of God. I just want to finish now. Um, often... It's helpful to give uh, practical applications um, for how we apply this text, I think. Um, and sometimes that's really helpful to give more concrete applications. I think there's nothing more practical than applying this text to ourselves by just very quickly summarizing everything that this tells us about Jesus as the Christ and just basking in that just sitting under that, being reminded of Jesus as the Christ. So I've got seven themes here that point us to Jesus as the Christ and that reveal his glory. Number one, 
He is the one who reveals God's glory. He is the radiance of the glory of God. We see that by John's, um, how he identifies himself as a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. What was the point of that highway? That the glory of God would be revealed. Jesus comes and we see, we have beheld his glory. Jesus is the one who reveals God's glory. That is what we were made for. Secondly, he is worthy of all honor. Verse 27, John the Baptist, the greatest among men, is not worthy to untie his sandals. Jesus is worthy of all honor. Perhaps a way that we realize that even more is the fact that we, we read that John the Baptist, though he's the greatest among men, Jesus says, but he's the least in the kingdom of heaven. This beautiful flip comes where when we realize we're not even worthy to untie, we're not even worthy to wash muddy feet of our Messiah. And when we realize that in humility and we bow before him and trust in him, he elevates us to this position far greater than John the Baptist. It's an amazing thing. He is worthy of all honor. Thirdly, he is the promised Passover lamb. Think about that. Imagine living in this before Christ celebrating the Passover, having to slaughter the lamb, knowing that it was only blood that would cover you and just waiting and waiting for the fulfillment of that. Jesus is the promised Passover lamb, not only covering for the sin of Israel, but for the sin of the world. John increases the scope of it to show that it is through this Passover lamb that all peoples from every tribe, tongue and nation would have their sin wiped away fourthly he is god's revelation he is god revealing himself he is the image of the invisible god we see that in verse 31 this was the purpose of john's baptism so that he might be revealed to israel jesus is god saying i'm here you want to know me here's my son he is God's revelation. Fifthly, he is the chosen servant whom God has placed his spirit upon. The suffering servant with whom God the Father is well pleased, whom he places his spirit upon. And the beautiful thing is that when we trust in Jesus, when we are reconciled to the Father, we have the Father's pleasure upon us. Not because we are worthy of it, but because we are in Christ. So we long for that statement from the Father well done, good and faithful servant. I am well pleased. And when we are in Christ, we have the pleasure of the Father upon us. Sixth, he brings the promised spirit. This is the mark of the new creation. The comforter who we read about in the latter parts of John. The comforter who guides us into all truth. The paraclete who illuminates Christ to us, who points us to our Messiah Jesus brings the promised spirit, the mark of the new creation. Seventh and final, he is the son of God. The statement gets used so much that we miss the weight of this title. He is the son whom God appoints as his representative, as his heir. Think of the parable where God sends his representatives and finally he thinks, I'll send my son. This is the, this is the most... The, the, the most significant thing. Surely no one would reject my son. 
Jesus is the son of God. He is the heir of all things. He is the son by whom we have the only possible access to the father. And this is what fills us with assurance. He is the son of God. And we know that since God the father did not withhold his own son, but freely gave him up for us, we know he will give us all things. He is the son of God. Let's stop there and prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper in in response to this. He is the Son of God. He is the Passover Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He is the revelation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. There is no one before him. He is preeminent. And we, in our sin, are utterly unworthy to approach him in any way. We should be destined to hell for all eternity. And in his immeasurable grace and mercy, his abundant mercy, he provides the atoning sacrifice. He provides his only son. God the Father provides his only son in order to die the death that we deserve, that we might receive the life we do not deserve. The bread, symbolic of the body of our Saviour, hung upon the tree, the cup, symbolic of his blood shed, the blood of the new covenant. Let's uh, just stop now and have a moment of silence to prepare our hearts to take this and be reminded, just as uh, we were reminded then of being baptized in the Holy Spirit as the mark of the new creation. We, we are reminded in taking the, the bread and the cup that um, we are living in that age, but we long for the full meal. We long for the banquet. We long to be with our Savior. We long to not have anything inhibiting our praise toward him. Uh, We know that our sins, as far as the east is from the west, have been cast away, but we long for the day where the presence of sin would be gone, where there would be no more corruption, and we would worship our Christ in an uninhibited way.